Well, good evening. We'll seek to continue with what began this morning, which itself was a continuation of uh, what I spoke on uh, in October on election. Um, with the state of the church today, it's intertwined with predestination. And so this morning we, we spoke on how we're predestinated to be conformed to the image of Christ. Tonight we'll speak a little bit about, well, who is Christ? What is His image? Speak a little about what Christ experienced here on earth, and maybe what He's experiencing now. Maybe what we're experiencing, and what we can look forward to. That should lead us to a point where we draw some conclusions about what we ought to do with our life. And then we'll attempt to put all this into context uh, of God's will, what His desire is. As we spoke this morning, the desire of God is that He would receive glory in all things. Glory is God's first priority. God desires and He predestines that all creation will be in harmony with His glory. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. We're told that Jesus is the full radiance of the glory of God in Hebrews, in the first opening chapter there, that wonderful picture of our Savior. He's the exact imprint of the nature of God, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. His power is supreme. And all things will be brought into conformity with the will of God. God's perfect will for mankind is that we would all be saved. As I mentioned this morning, you know, a lot of this has all been couched um, in the context of Reformed theology, which has been growing like a, it's being pushed upon the evangelical church with a great ferocity by wonderful good men of, of God. And yet, God blesses them and uses them to reach millions of people. And we give thanks for their ministry. If the Apostle Paul could say in, in Philippians chapter 1 that although there were some who preached the gospel thinking to cause him harm, yet he still gave glory to God that the gospel was preached. How much less would we give glory to God for some of these men with whom we take issue? And yet we remain offended for God that they would libel him and say that he would choose people to spend all eternity in the lake of fire. Well, we're not going to spend a great deal of time talking about that. We've already mentioned that God's perfect will is that his desire is that all mankind would be saved. We have many scriptures which speak to that. And the only way that Reformed theology can deal with that is say, well, even though it says all, what all really means is something less than all. We know that that's not true. God desires that we take advantage of open doors. And many Calvinists have been wonderful evangelists. We think of in this past century, uh, a gentleman named Kennedy Smart, Presbyterian minister, a Calvinist, won huge numbers of people for Christ. He's the one who taught D. James Kennedy how to evangelize. There's another Calvinist who won who knows how many souls for Christ. So we, we thank God for them, but we take exception to the foundation upon which they built their view of election. Well, how do we get open doors? 
you know, as we walk through life, God provides open doors for us on a daily basis, and sometimes we just walk right by them. Here a couple weeks ago, I had a really rather interesting experience. You know that my, my work schedule, my duty cycle is seven days on duty, seven days off. When I'm working nights, my last um, night when I leave to come home, by the time I get home, I'm up for like 24, 25 hours typically. I'll make a couple stops along the way. Now there's a McDonald's in Agoura Hills that I frequent. It's a nice place to stop and visit the restroom and get a soda pop and uh, refresh myself, walk around a little bit and uh, sort of wake up. Well, I pulled in there and I just, they asked me if I wanted something. No, I'll just, I'll just take a soda, thank you. But when I got over by the soda machine, I got thinking, you know, it's been 15, 16, 18 hours since I've eaten. Maybe, boy, that Big Mac sounds pretty good. So, and I don't care what you say, I like McDonald's. Um, I, can you tell by looking at me? So I went back up to the counter and, and I asked them, um, you know, I think I've changed my mind. I will have something to eat. Uh, give me that Big Mac combo. And uh, I didn't supersize it. I, I do have some restraint. <laughs> but all of a sudden I realized, hey, the whole staff of this McDonald's is standing behind the, the cash register. What's going on here? I'm not wearing a firearm or anything. I'm, I don't think I look like an axe murderer. What are they all standing here for? And they're all looking expectantly at me. And as I go to reach for my wallet, they said, well, how are you going to pay for this? I said, I'm getting my I'm cash. They said, you want to pay for it with love? And now I'm like, okay, I've got to wake up. I don't have a clue what's going on. And I, I said, excuse me? And they said, they said, you can pay for your meal with love. And you know, us men, we're kind of dense. It's like, this is not sinking in. I have no idea what's going on. And so I said, well, I, I, I've got money. Here, here's a 20. That'll cover it, won't it? And they said, no, you don't get it. You, you can pay for your food with love. You just show us, love. we want a demonstration of love. Explain to us something that tells us what love is. <laughs> now the Lord knows that I need neon signs. Open door, open door, open door. And the light finally went on. I didn't know what was up. I really didn't know, but they asked for it. <laughs> I said, I said, you know, the world looks at, at love uh, with rather strange uh, spectacles. I said, love uh, in our society is based often on lust. And it's what can I get out of this? I love thing. I love pizza. I love Big Macs. What kind of love is that? I said, but here's the real demonstration of love that the God of the creation would demonstrate his love to me. While I am his enemy, he sent his son to die for me so I wouldn't have to die. And they were silent just like you. They were looking at me. And all of a sudden, I see these huge smiles develop on a couple of them. And I, I just went on to explain. I says, the real meaning of love is when you put somebody else's interest ahead of your own. And you treat them in a way that honors them and blesses them. That's what true love is. And that's what God did for us when he sent his son to die for us so we wouldn't have to. They started clapping. And 
high-fiving and clapping and just say, that's wonderful. We, you know, that is just beautiful. And I want to take a picture. And one of the ladies, I want my picture with them and came around. <laughs> I still had no idea what was going on. But they said, here's your food and you don't have to pay for it. I got a Big Mac and it was very tasty. And so were the fries. So God provides open doors. You know, there's no shortage of open doors. That one was blatant, and God knows I'm kind of dense, and, and I need, like I said, a neon sign on occasion. But the desire is, is that we would reach every human being with the gospel. Well, I'm going to blaze through a bunch of scripture. Um, you can try to keep up with me, or you can just listen, or get the tape, or I'll give you my notes later. I'm not going to develop any great, deep theological thoughts tonight. We're just going to shoot through a bunch of scripture to try to get a picture of Christ um, and understand his image with a recognition that we're predestined to be conformed to it. That's our destiny. So who is Christ and how is he pictured in scripture? Well, he's the author of creation in uh, John 1.3. All things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Or how about those beautiful passages in Colossians, Colossians 1, for by, 16 and 17, for by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He's the author of creation. We were also told he's the word of God become flesh. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace. You know, John often called Jesus the word, and here we have the word living amongst us in flesh. You know, Scripture says, in the whole of the scroll it is written of me. It's all a picture of Jesus, who is the exact representation of God. He's the word of God in flesh. He's a servant of God in Isaiah 42.1, and it's quoted in Matthew 12.18. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. But he's also the servant of man, Luke 22.27. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. And again, Jesus speaking, uh, as Matthew relates it, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. In Matthew 26 63 and 64, we have Jesus pictured as both the Son of God and the Son of Man. The high priest says, I adjure you in the name of God, tell us if you are the Messiah. Jesus responds, it is as you say, I'm the Son of God. But then he goes on to tell him that you will see the Son of Man. He takes the title Son of Man. So we have the Son of God and the Son of Man. Jesus was pointing out his deity but he's also become flesh amongst us. The Lamb of God, uh, John 1.29, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We see him as the Savior. That Lamb that gave its life for the Passover was a symbol of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, not just cover them over, paint them up for a year, but forever put them away. Where God would say, I choose to remember your sins no more. He's the firstborn, Colossians 1.15. We go back there on that uh, beautiful passage in the first chapter of Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn 
the prototokos, the one who is preeminent, not just the first in the order he's born, but the most important of all creation. He's our mediator, we're told in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He negotiates between God and us, and he's the only one that exists. He's the anchor of our soul. We spoke about it this morning, the anchor of our soul and the forerunner in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You know, when a vessel would approach a a dangerous harbor in ancient times, in order to safely navigate fully into the port, sometimes one of the seamen would jump overboard with a rope and swim to shore, or maybe take a small boat to shore, and attach a a line to the beach where it could be pulled in. And if it was especially dangerous, they might put an anchor off the stern of the boat and draw the two lines tight and slowly bring that boat securely home. That's the picture we have of Jesus. He's the anchor of our soul and the forerunner. He's our advocate. 1 John 2 verse 1 tells us, you know, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's our intercessor. He prays for us. We're told in Hebrews 7.25, He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He's praying for us. That's all He lives for now is to pray for us. He's also the purifier of our prayers. In Revelation 8, verse 3, now there's some contention, some disagreement whether this angel is actually Jesus or Jesus gives him the incense. But still the idea is, as Jesus said, you know, you've sought nothing before, but ask the Father for anything in my name. We pray through Jesus Christ, to the Father. But Revelation 8, verse 3, pictures the purification of our our prayers. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. The prayers of all saints. He's a purifier of our prayers. He's our head, Ephesians 4, 15, in Ephesians chapter 1. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And in in the first chapter, speaking of God, speaking of God gave him to be head over all things to the church. He's our head. He's our example. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. As Christ lived, we should live. He set the example. He is our example. He's also going to be our judge, and not our judge only, but the judge of all. 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you, Paul's writing to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who he is to judge the living and the dead. In John 5.22, Jesus says it about himself, The Father judgeth no man, but has committed all judgment with the Son. He's our judge. A little more glorious, he's our bridegroom. 2 Corinthians 11.2, For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Is the life we're living, does it leave us 
chaste? Do we present the picture of a chaste virgin? Finally, Revelations 19, Revelation 19, 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Certainly, it is appropriate for the one who is prototokos, the, the preeminent one. Well, if we consider him, let's think about uh, his life on earth. He was obedient, Philippians 2.8. We spoke of it this morning. And being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross. He was obedient. He was meek and lowly, Matthew 11.29. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Though he had all the power of the universe, he held it in restraint. Meek doesn't mean weak. It means power that is under control. In doing so, he was able to minister to the hurt, to the hurting, to those who were in desperate need. He was guileless, 1 Peter 2, verse 22, speaking of him, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Whatever we may look at about Christ, he never had the intent of misleading anybody to bring them to harm. As we talked before about how do you reconcile that with the parables? Well, I, I just know this. When it says that he spoke that they would hear but not understand or see but not perceive, it wasn't with guile. My own thoughts are that knowing they wouldn't choose him, they would not accept him, he didn't add to their punishment by giving them greater knowledge. I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but I'll be dogmatic about this. Neither was guile found in his mouth. He was tempted, Hebrews 4.15, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted as we yet without sin. He was oppressed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth, Isaiah 53, 7. In that same chapter, we see that he was uh, despised and rejected in 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was betrayed, Matthew 27, 3. Then Judas, which had betrayed him. Betrayed by his friend. We, we hear that Judas repented. He just repented because he felt bad about what had happened. He didn't truly, we know that he went to a devil's hell. But Jesus was betrayed by somebody who spent all that time in his presence. He was condemned, Mark 14, 64, we read that, and they all condemned him to be guilty unto death. He was reviled, 1 Peter 2, verse 23, who, when he was reviled, revileth not again. When he suffered, he threateneth not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. So when he was reviled, he just withstood it and put his trust in him that judgeth righteously. He was scourged, John 19.1. He was mocked, Matthew 27.29. When they had platted a, a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his hand, and they bowed the knees before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. 
Going back to Isaiah 53, verse 5, he was wounded and he was bruised. He was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 4, right before that we read, he's stricken, he's smitten. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him as stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Boy, you hear a lot of that in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel today. Boy, if you're not being blessed, you know, God isn't treating you well. You, you don't deserve it. There's something wrong in your life. I guess they never read the prophet Isaiah, did they? This is how God treated his son. We read that God the Father was pleased to bruise him. But why was he pleased? He bruised him on our account. We deserve the bruising, but Christ bore it. Yes, indeed, he was crucified. The end result of his experience with man, as we talked this morning, was that his creation crucified him. Finally, he was forsaken. Psalm 22. Christ quotes the beginning of that from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Three hours he bore the wrath of God that was due us. A separation between father and son that never existed and never again will exist. But for that three hours, again, no guile found within his mouth. If he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We can believe that Christ is speaking truth that there was separation between him and the Father, for the Father could not look upon the sin that he bore for us. He who knew no sin be, was made to become our sin, that we might become his righteousness in God. Well, that was a lot of what he was on earth, and some of these um, attributes he still, uh, still bears. He's merciful. And he's faithful. We're told that in Hebrews 2.17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Staying in Hebrews in the seventh chapter, um, verse 26, we got, we got five of these things that describe Christ. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, higher than the heavens, and separate. We'll read verse 25 as well. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He is perfect, Hebrews 5, 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. Christ was always perfect. We talked this morning about the passage in Hebrews chapter 2. The captain of our salvation was made perfect in sufferings. Well, he was perfect to begin with. What he was made was perfect representation that we could identify with this high priest who knew what it was to be tempted and to suffer, even as us, yet without sin. He is glorious, Isaiah 49, 5. And now saith the Lord that formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him. Though Israel be not gathered yet, I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. 
Who better to be glorious in the eyes of? This world wants to give lots of glory to people for all the wrong reasons. The Lord Jesus is glorious because he did the will of the Father as the exact imprint brings glory to God. He's mighty. We were talking before the meeting about the, the city of Basra in, in Petra nearby. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This is this that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. He's mighty. There's a picture of him coming back at the end of the tribulation. Again, meek, but also mighty. He is justified. 1 Timothy 3.16 says that without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Being received up into glory, he's also exalted. Acts 2.33, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. Being exalted, he's also risen. Luke 24, 6. Um, well, 24, 5 and 6. Speaking of those who came to the tomb, the angels asked, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but risen. Remember how he spake to you when he was yet in Galilee. And he is glorified. Acts 3.13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate, who was determined to let him go. He is glorified. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all, with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. You know, Paul has this way of describing uh, these things, moving from one position to another. From glory to, can we say there's glory in this, this world and in our creation? Well, there's glory in that we're created in the image of God, but we're also wearing the tainted image of the first Adam. Yet we're being changed into the glory of God. We will be partakers of the divine nature. Well, how do we apply this to us? Let's consider us. If he was obedient, and he's our example, should we be obedient? For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, 1 John 5, 3. He was meek and lowly. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus said, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. If we're meek and lowly in heart, can we in our strength, through our meekness, minister unto those who are in desperate need, who are hurting? Guileless. Speaking of some of the saints out of the, out of the tribulation, Revelation 15, 5, and in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. You know, the, this is an interesting question. We have law enforcement officers here. How does an undercover cop do his job? I have a friend who retired from El Monte, 
at his retirement party, they made light of him because as an undercover officer, if somebody asked him if he was a cop, he said, yeah, and would just walk away. Now, that's awful hard to do if you're in a, a deep undercover job. I, took, I can take a lot of comfort from the spies we're sent into the land. Now, I would want to be Joshua or Caleb, not the other ten. When I think of the two that went into uh, Jericho, I don't know, but we should never have guile in our mouth with the intent of defrauding, of misleading, of taking advantage of. Christ was tempted. Do we think we're going to be tempted? We're told there, there are no temptation taking you, but what is common to man, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, we're going to be tempted. How many times a day? You know, Proverbs tells us that, or in the Psalms, a righteous man falls seven times a day, yet he rises back up. It's the unjust that stumbles and falls and does not recover. Jesus was oppressed. John 16, he told us, in this world you will have tribulation, but he comforts us. Fear not, for I have overcome the world. He was despised. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. He was rejected, Luke 10, 16. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. It's like God told Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. If you want to see um, being despised, you want to experience that or experience being rejected, come out with a street preaching team sometime. Now, to be honest, we don't see it all that often, but it does happen. How about betrayal? Jesus was betrayed by his friend. Matthew 10 uh, Verses 34 to 36, he gives us this perhaps troubling um, passage. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. We see that Christ divides. It does divide families. We're heartbroken over it, but that happens. He told us it would. He was condemned. Well, we have that glorious promise in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's no condemnation from God. We certainly receive a lot of commendation, condemnation rather from the world. We receive precious little commendation from the world. Reviled, if he was reviled, will be reviled. First Peter 4, 14 says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. How about scourged? How about wounded, bruised, stricken, smitten? You know, the Apostle Paul writes how five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes in how many times was he beaten by the, with the rod and stoned? All the trials and tribulations he faced. Now, we're not seeing much of this physical abuse here in America, but we're certainly seeing it in the world, aren't we? What sad news comes across the news services? 
and yet we're so isolated from it that it has become just a news item. For how long have Christians been being put to death all around the world for their faith? Well, to be sure, there's people of other quote-unquote faiths losing their lives too. Think of the Arissa state in, in India a couple, three years ago, all the Christians that were murdered there. And we see the news today. We see that just a few days ago, 21 Coptic Christians put to death solely for the reason that they were Christians. They left this earth and went right into the glory of God. Our hearts are still broken, but we shouldn't be surprised. Christ told us this was going to happen. Mocking. Again, you want to hear some mocking? Come on out with the street preaching team. I'd love to have you. You could pray. Again, we don't get that much mocking, but we do see some. There are those that come out and mock. Finally, of course, Christ was crucified. He was forsaken. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That is one thing Christ experienced that we will never experience. We're in Christ. We'll never be separated from the Father. We can we can roughen up our relationship with him when we sin. But the Father is never going to be separated from us. Betrayal, we talked a little bit about that. You know, every time we sin, we're betraying Christ. That's a betrayal for the one who gave his blood for us. Well, what will we be? Merciful, faithful, holy, separate from sin and from this world, harmless, undefiled, in the heavens, perfect, mighty. We'll rule and reign with Christ if we suffer, if we endure. Do a study of that sometime, ruling with Christ and reigning with Christ. See the qualifications that are listed there. I don't see it being the same as uh, salvation, as justification. All believers will spend forever in the presence of the glory of God. I don't know how to explain all of those parables, but I do know what it means I should do. I should be obedient. I should bring glory to God. I should be obedient to Christ. I should reflect His love and His glory into this dark and dying world. Sometimes you have to be mighty to do that. And Christ said in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Philadelphia, see, you have but little strength. We don't need strength. We've got Him. He's mighty. We have the Spirit of the living God dwelling within us. Because of that, we're going to be exalted. We're going to rise from fleshly death. If the Lord tarries in sending His Son, it won't be that long till I and others who are getting gray in the head or thin in the shingles like I am, will our, this earthly body will die. But whether in death or at the rapture, we will leave behind this body of death this one that still carries the stain of sin and the curse of death on the body. My spirit, I am, my sins have been paid for. Praise God, hallelujah. I don't have to worry about my sin other than that it trip me up and inhibit my relationship with God if I continue in sin now. 
But the price for the eternal position where I spend of my sins has been paid by Christ. It's over and done with. Well, when I'm risen from this fleshly death, then I'll be glorified. And that brings us back to where we started. Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That glorious picture that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. We will be absent from the body of death. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more temptation to sin, no more uh, discouragement, and no more guilt over failure. Those will be non-existent for us in the eternal state. We will be given a glorified body made fit for dwelling with the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. The exact character, the exact imprint, the exact representation of the living God. Again, it staggers the mind. How can we begin to comprehend it? Well, if that's our position, as I mentioned briefly this morning, the future for those who are not found in Christ, it's not so pretty, and it's found in Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 of the final judgment. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every man, according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Again, if we're given bodies which are prepared and made fit, appropriate for dwelling within the presence of the glory of God forever. Those who are sent to the lake of fire are going to be given a body that will exist forever. It will be fit and made appropriate for dwelling and suffering forever, separate from God and in the lake of fire. The only thing that puts somebody into the lake of fire is rejecting Christ is deciding I can save myself. Or as we spoke this morning, they feel no guilt over their sins. They're not heartbroken over their failures. They're not only comfortable, perhaps they, they relish and thrive on disobedience to God and living a life immersed in sin. We pray for a spirit of conviction for our family, our friends, our loved ones who don't know Christ even as much as we pray for it for ourselves that we might live holy lives. As I said this morning, if there's somebody here that has any doubts about where you're going when you die, the simple truth is this, it is not safe for you to die. 
Sometimes I get people who tell me, oh, I'm just going to wait. And I'll, I'll ask them, well, how long are you planning on living anyways? And I asked one young man that a few months back, and he was completely, almost destroyed. He, he was drawn back. I don't know if he'd lost somebody recently, but obviously the reality of the uncertainty of life, I think I told him, you know, there's no guarantee that any of us have one more heartbeat than we've already had. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. It, there's an appointment. We don't know when it is, perhaps, but God does. That same chapter in Hebrews 9 tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. All it takes is one moment to realize that you're a sinner and that you must be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, which was spilled to take away our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. That's God's desire. He says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's his, he wills all men to be saved, but he gives us that choice. Again, if you're struggling with that, if you have questions, talk to one of us before you leave the meeting tonight. And again, if there's any prayer needs, same thing. We're, as saints, we should be meek and lowly, and we should come to others when we need help, when we need prayer. And we should also be willing to meet with others and give them prayer. That's following the example that our Lord and Savior sent for us. There's division in the church, division amongst the denominations. There's divisions amongst the assemblies. There's divisions amongst us here. The church is one foundation. It's Christ. Will we be obedient? Or can they give an account someday? Our hearts should be broken that we're not together. It's incumbent upon us to be meek and lowly. You can be meek if you're strong. If you're strong in Christ and focused on Christ, the strength by its nature will come out. It's what's in the heart that comes forth. We focus on Christ, we feed on Christ, we commune with Christ. All these divisions will disappear. We'll truly be united. All members of one body, fit to work together. Closer to that image of Christ that we're going to bear in heaven. We can fall on one another's necks here in this world and be reconciled, or we can do it in heaven. I suggest it's better we do it here. Father, we, we thank you for the picture of glory that you have provided to us. This promise that will not be broken. That you have chosen us out as a, a race of beings who are going to be elevated. To be like unto Jesus, our Savior, your Son, the prototokos, the one who's first in all creation, Jesus, fully God and fully man. Father, we're brokenhearted that um, the flesh gets in the way. Help us to mortify the flesh. 
Help us to give up those things that we cling to by pride, those things which we cling to in error, even if we are in that error with good intentions. Strip it away. Our earnest desire, even in our division, is that we would finish well, that we would reflect the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would bring honor to your name, that we indeed would be in concert with your desire for your glory. In all these things, we know that we should be more than conquerors. So help us to submit to the Spirit, knowing that if we do, all the things that stand between us and your glorious will will just vanish and disappear. Again, Father, we, we can scarce uh, comprehend the glories that await us. Help us to keep a, a vision which looks towards eternity. And in doing so, we might order our steps here in this world to be smack dab in the middle of your will turning neither to the right or to the left, but walking towards the goal which you have set before us, even as Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, despising the cross, despising the shame and enduring the cross, and was set down at the right hand of you, Father. So, Father, help us to despise the shame of the world that we look at at times lustfully. Help us to see it for what it is and help us to look at one another for what we are, your children, brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask for your blessing upon the work of this assembly and every individual uh, who fellowships here. And we pray for those brothers and sisters in Christ all around us in other gatherings. We pray that your church would rise up and be effective, that there would be a mighty harvest of souls before you send your son back, all for his glory and for your glory, Father. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.